my path to where I've gotten has been characterized by like resilient grit, like just like putting my head down and like not listening to the noise around me and like really being true to who I am and just working my butt off. <laughs> this is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Welcome, everyone. So in the wake of Tokyo 2020, I'm so excited to bring this conversation to you. But first, let's play a thought game. You're playing golf. It's the 18th hole. You've worked hard to improve your game, and you're about to break 80 for the first time. As you stare down the line of your putt, you look nervously at your friends for some encouragement. A smile, a nod, anything. But they aren't looking at you. Their eyes are wide, focused on something at your feet. It's your custom ball marker from warlockgolf.com. Warlock Golf is a Canadian-based company rooted in small-town Manitoba that understands that golf is supposed to be fun. That's why they offer a variety of -of one-of-a-kind ball markers and golf accessories that'll add some serious style to your game. So add some fun to your game by visiting warlockgolf.com and using discount code PLANT15 for 15% off your order. That's code PLANT15 for 15% off your order at warlockgolf.com. All right, so who is my guest? My guest today is Canadian Olympian Haley Daniels. She's a canoe slalom athlete who made history by being among the very first women to compete in the canoe slalom event at the Olympic Games. Haley is passionate about gender equality in sport and was actually one of the advocates for the women's canoe events to be added to the Olympic program. And actually, when you listen, you'll hear about what this journey meant for her and the path she is paving for future female athletes. It's pretty incredible. Um, But a bit about her background. So she grew up in Calgary, Alberta, my favorite city, and started paddling at the age of 10 and competing at the age of 14. So since, since then, she has had quite a decorated career and notable achievements include winning a historic bronze medal at the Toronto 2015 Pan American Games, which was also the first Pan Am Games to feature women's canoe events. So pretty cool. She has also competed on the IACF, which is the International Canoe Federation World Circuit each year since 2009. And in 2012, she won silver at the Pan American Championships. In 2017, she won C1 gold at the Pan American Championships and made her first World Cup final. So basically, she's incredible and has years of experience competing among the best. But one other thing, did you know Haley is also plant-based? So yes, a plant-based Olympian. This is actually how she came across my radar in the first place, and since then, I've been following her journey on Instagram. When I found out she qualified for Tokyo, this podcast actually didn't even exist yet, but I knew I had to have her on the show. So we were initially planning to chat before the Olympics, but with her crazy schedule, as you'll hear about, it wasn't able to happen. But I was overjoyed when she said she could uh, fit me in afterwards, and arguably this made for an even better discussion because we were actually able to talk about the Olympics. So in this conversation, we talk about her journey to Tokyo, her training, and what it was like training through a global pandemic. She shares her opinions on gender equality in sport and what she's doing about it. We talk about the importance of mental training and how she's developed her grit and resilience. And finally, we talk about her plant-based diet, why she switched and what the food was like in Tokyo. Plus a whole lot more, of course. One last thing, please, if you're listening to the show and you want to support me further, um, subscribe, rate me five stars, and please tell your friends, um, friends, family, anyone you think might be interested. It really helps me grow me grow my audience. It's hard to start a new podcast these days. The market's pretty saturated. So if you like my work, please support. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Haley Daniels. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hello, Haley. Huge welcome. I am so excited and honored to have you here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 
So I'll be honest, it's a little surreal being able to talk to you after watching you on CBC. So you basically just got back from Tokyo. And I know this is a huge question, but what is the adjustment like now that something you worked for for years is kind of behind you? Um, I mean, I'm still jet lagged. <laughs> um, yeah, the adjustment coming back from Tokyo is uh, is quite weird because um, it's hard to wake up and then hard to go to sleep. Um, so it's a hard one. But um, yeah, I I mean, I'm still going through it. So um, I I wish I could say it's like sh- sunshine and lollipops, and I feel relieved. And and there's def- definitely a sense of relief, but I think there's more of a sense of ang- anxiety right now because um, I need to kind of strive for new goals um, and figure out what those are. And um, I need to. I mean, Paris is three years away, and um, I, I need to decide if I want to fight for that, that Olympic start line again. So I think it's, um, doing some soul searching for myself and figuring out what's, what's next, but also being real with slowing down and actually recovering. Yeah, that's huge. And I think that's actually one thing that stood out to me. Cause I know you're squeezing me in right before you're taking about like a month off the rest of August, just to like relax and rewind. And I'm sure some well-needed recovery, right? Yeah. I, um, I think that, I overestimated, um, how much I needed or underestimated, um, how much time I really needed. And I think, um, just, uh, something that I like hadn't really calculated into my plans is I wanted to see all my friends and family and I was so excited to see them, but, um, everyone wants to know about the Olympics and, um, I just kind of want to, I know that I want to forget them at all. I just, I kind of want to slow down a little bit and just be, be me. Um, so, um, yeah, happy to have that time, but I'm also happy to be here with you. So don't worry about that. (laughs) Well, well, thank you. So I have so much I want to ask you, but before we start, um, would you mind sharing a bit more about your entire Olympic experience? Because I know like there's this, the dream of the Olympics and you've worked so hard to get there and was it everything you thought it would be or, um, how did it meet your expectations? Oh, there's so much, so much to the Olympics to debunk, but I mean, it was, it was magical being there for sure. Um, I mean, there's so many things that, um, I thought about when I wanted to go to, for team Canada. Um, and one of the, I mean, there's, uh, the, the getting the qual- qualification is the biggest thing. Um, so being successful in qualifying and then, um, being officially welcomed onto the team. Um, and then, uh, obviously it's been a little bit of a different experience just because, um, the pandemic has really changed things and changed how the, the face of the Olympics were. Um, but, uh, I mean, being able to go and get your team Canada kit and proudly wearing it, um, and, uh, getting into the Olympic village and seeing so many different athletes that are, um, so different in body types. And, and I mean, a lot of them are, um, way bigger deal than I am. So just knowing, um, knowing that you get to rub shoulders and be doing the exact same thing that like, um, those big athletes are doing, I think is really cool. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, like, um, I mean, when I first got to the Olympic village, I cried. I was, it was such a, um, overwhelming experience because, um, it's, at the end of the day, it's just a place where we need to sleep and eat and recover. Right. So, um, although it's this place that's been hyped up for years, um, and you need an accreditation to get in, it's like, you've earned your right to be there. So, um, 
I, I kind of got my Olympic village experience out of the way right at the beginning. Cause I wanted to not have FOMO. So I went and took pictures with the rings. Cause there's these big Olympic rings that are sitting there and there's always a lineup for, to take a picture in front of it. Um, and then, uh, I went and, uh, did, there's like some, a couple of experiences that you can do in the village, like, uh, and the shopping, um, of the official Tokyo 2020 merchandise. And so got all that all the way. And then I just felt completely exhausted. So I took some time to just chill. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a very cool experience. Um, I wish that we were able to go into Tokyo and actually mingle with people in the city and, um, I, I, a lot of things I wish we had access to, like, um, you know, being able to celebrate together after the Olympics, um, and going to other events and cheering on other team Canada athletes. But, um, I'm so grateful that the Olympics happened and it was able to go ahead. So, yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine and having coming, like it's your first Olympic games, you have nothing, I guess, to compare it to, whereas some athletes, they'd experience the entire, the, I guess, traditional Olympic games before that. And they're coming into this one, but, um, I guess like you made the most of it and it's, it sounds incredible. Like I saw your picture with the rings and like, what a surreal moment. Um, can you just describe your sport a little bit? Because I know some people are unfamiliar with it. Um, so you compete in canoe slalom and I personally, I had to like, look it up. I read about the differences, but I'd love if you just like explain it because it's such an insane sport. Yeah. So, uh, the sport I'm in is, as you said, canoe slalom. So, um, you go down gates on a whitewater course. Um, it's an artificial course that we compete on in the Olympics. So it's essentially a concrete ditch that's been built where water gets pumped up through it and, um, recirculates the water is chlorine, um, on the course in Tokyo, but not all of the courses in the world are like that. Um, and there's anywhere from 18 to 25 gates. Um, you go down green gates and up red gates. Um, and if you touch a gate, it's a two second penalty. And if you miss a gate, it's a 50 second penalty. So you really don't want to do that. Um, unfortunately I did that in my second race run of the Olympics. Um, but it is what it is. It's our sport. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then there's four, there's two categories. Um, so there is men's kayak and women's kayak and then men's canoe and women's canoe, um, and men's kayak and women's kayak and men's canoe have been in the Olympics for 85 years. Um, and women's canoe just debuted in Tokyo 2020 and it's the first time that we're gender equal. So, um, myself and a group of women's canoeists across the world fought for gender equality for a very long time. Um, and it created a lot of adversity and barriers in our sports, but, um, I'm super proud to be a part of this first wave of female canoeists to ever race in Tokyo and in the Olympics. And, um, although my Olympic performance didn't go the way I wanted it to, um, we still made history and I'm just so grateful to be a part of that. Yeah. Making history and just like you made history before, like just running your race. And yeah, it's, it's crazy. I was wondering about, um, whether it was chlorinated or not. Um, and I'm also curious, when did you decide like to specialize in canoe versus kayak? Is that a decision you made really early on in your career or how does that, how does that work? Yeah, I, uh, I decided to, um, transition. So I actually started in kayak. Um, so I, I have been paddling my whole life. My parents, um, and my, my whole family, we would go on canoe trips and we have a place out in Invermere, um, where I grew up paddling on that lake. So, um, it was kind of something that was natural for me. And I went to a kayak camp when I was, um, 
I think I was 13 or 14. I can't remember the exact age. And I, I liked it. I had a lot of fun and I was pretty good at it because I was pretty comfortable in the water. And then I got invited to go to the national championships. We're at the Kananaskis that year. And nationals actually aren't that big of a deal in our sport. So um, it was, it was kind of cool to go there. And I, I kind of realized that I really liked it. And I liked the people that were there and um, I kind of just kept on going. We found out about structure and um, I, so I started kayaking and then I realized that there was this opportunity that women's canoeing was getting added into the world cups and the world championships. Um, so I remember profoundly sitting down with my dad and we were talking it through and it was just like pros and cons of switching. So for a bit, I did kayak and canoe at the same time. And I was really afraid of canoe um, because you're kneeling and you have a single blade where kayak, you have a double blade and you're sitting. So you have a lot more stability in kayak. And uh, I just, I, I was like, okay, I want to get good at this. And I knew it was going to take a lot of work for me to get good at kayak and canoe at the same time. So, um, I kind of just decided to hang out my kayak and specialize in canoe. Um, and, uh, yeah, the rest is history from there. So, so crazy. So when you're only pat, like you only have one blade or on your paddle, do you switch sides at all? Like kayak, you get to paddle on both sides, but as canoe, do you just stay to one side? Yeah. Canoeing you, um, uh, actually women's canoeing specifically, we switch sides. So we'll be switching like while we're like going over crazy white water back and forth constantly throughout the course. Uh, and it's really cool because men, um, have always just stayed on one side and then they do a thing called a crossbow, um, or, a, yeah, a crossbow stroke or, a, an offside stroke. And, um, so it's where you stay on the same side and then you cross over and take a big stroke. Um, but, uh, since women's canoeing has been switching and successfully, um, doing so now the men are starting to switch sides. And so I think it's cool because, um, we're starting a trend for the men, which is not as normal. Yeah. I, I love that actually. So, um, how long does it take roughly to come down the course and is every course the same or will it be different depending on like where you're competing? Uh, to go down a course, it's usually anywhere from 90 to 120 to 30 seconds. Um, and it's, uh, different every course, even on the same course, like in Tokyo, I had never practiced the course that was set. So I was able to practice some of the moves and I was able to paddle the water and go down, down the river, um, several times, but, um, we are not able to practice the exact course that happens in our race. So, um, it takes a lot of visualization and understanding of how water will react on your blade and boat. Um, and then that's why we spend a lot of time, um, on different courses because it's important to get to know the water so that whatever gates are set, you know, how the water will react. Yeah. I was wondering that. So none of the athletes had the opportunity to practice on the course ahead of time or is is that standard? Um, that is standard. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, wow. A lot of visualization, I guess I want to get into a little bit more of your training later on, but first I just like to jump back because it's like, we can't just um, skim over it. Like it's huge that the women's event finally got added to the Olympics after 85 years of the men's event, like you said, and like you were a huge part in advocating for this. And I would just wonder like how much work did it take to make this happen? And can you just kind of walk us through that, what that journey was like? I think, um, the biggest thing for me that was important was continuing to focus on daily training and believe that at some point we'll finally be in the Olympics, um, and then working together. Um, so 
there was points where I was training and I had no idea what I was training for. I mean, I knew I was training for world championships and world cups, but, um, the Olympics is such a pinnacle and it's such a thing that everyone really in amateur sport strives for because it's, um, it's a unifying event. Um, so I mean, yeah. So the, the biggest part of our advocacy was, um, really public knowledge. So sharing our story and then putting pressure on the decision makers. So the international Olympic committee, the international canoe federation, um, and continuing to remind them that we are ready for the Olympics and that we would like to be there. So, um, it's, it's very, it's a, it is a lot of work. Um, I think that, um, I look at my journey and I think about, um, where I am today and, um, I am who I am today because of the barriers that were set in front of me, because I had to kind of rise to the occasion and, um, really like, be gritty and resilient through some hard times. But um, I am grateful that other young females who are getting into sport, um, specifically our sport, canoeing, um, are able to focus a little more on being athletes versus um, having to fight for their right because of their gender. So I think that uh, that's, that's such a silver lining. Like that's such an amazing thing that I, I know that. And even my teammate, um, Lois Betteridge, who I was competing for the Olympic spot for, for Canada. Um, I remember talking to her when I was going up, we were at the Olympic test event in Tokyo actually. Um, and I was talking to her when we were going up the conveyor belt and we were just at a training session. And she said, you know, I've actually never really noticed, um, that there's any barriers or I've had any discrimination of how I've been treated from coaches or federations or funding opportunities. Um, and she's a little younger than I am. She's, um, she's actually seven years younger than I am. So, um, it was, uh, really cool to hear her say that because I mean, that's everything that myself and the women's students have been fighting for so that she doesn't have to be discriminated against. And, um, so we had already won and already, you know, it was already, that she was seeing that support. So that's really important. Yeah, that's crazy. Just within like a few years that like there's such a noticeable difference. Um, I'm curious, can you give a couple examples of some of the barriers that you've experienced, whether it's like something a coach said or anything like that, if something comes to mind? Uh, most of the, I mean, the discrimination has been vast, but um, I would say it's, um, it's really been like, um, initially like the, there's a disrespect on the water, like the men's kayak and the, um, men's canoe, they would just go down right after us and run us over. And then I wouldn't have proper chaining and we're, we're sharing a river. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's certain sessions. And so that was really hard. Um, and then just not being taken seriously, um, in terms of like me training, they'd be like, Oh, your training's a joke or, um, like the investment financially, like, uh, because our sport wasn't Olympic, it wasn't recognized by sport Canada to get financial support. So that meant that, um, I had these huge bills of like, um, anywhere from 50 to $80,000 a year to compete. And, um, I had to come up with that all on my own. Um, and it's still, it's still quite a bit, like there's still a lack of support mm -hmm. for athletes in Canada, but, um, I do have a little bit of support now that we're Olympic, but, um, it was, it was really tricky to, to even navigate that. Um, and it, I think it just made me come back to my why, like, why am I doing this? Like, um, 
and I mean, obviously I'm doing this to, to pioneer legacy, but also like I do my sport cause I love doing it. I love being on the water. I love the growth, the, the adrenaline rush of the river connecting with the outdoors. Um, and the people in it, the community is absolutely amazing. So, um, I think that we have, I, I, I can't, I'm struggling to think of specific examples right now. It's okay. I mean, even in the beginning, there was some, there were some men that were saying, um, like just ridiculous comments. And I mean, like this was in the two thousands, like we're in the two thousands they're saying things like, um, women should be in the kitchen and not on the water or like, um, being a high performance canoe athlete will complicate women having babies. That seems, <laughs> that seems so outdated. That's ridiculous. Believe, That's like, like no, the whole and woman I, can't ride a bicycle thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you hear that and you're like, you're, you're done kind of, but it, it's, it's like, it's how some people still think mm-hmm. and believe. And so, um, that's why I think that there's still work that needs to be done and there's still, um, I think our story and our pushing for, for gender equality is hoping, hopefully shattering some barriers as well. Yeah, it's huge. And just the fact that you're a role model now for all these young women coming up and that's, that's huge. Like the value of role model cannot be understated. And I'm curious, like it, it would have been hard for you going through it, like not having anyone's, well, I don't know, maybe you did, but not a specific female in the sport to look up to, I guess. I was wondering who was your inspiration or if there's anyone that influenced you um, I mean, I definitely had a kayak woman that I looked up to who were able to be in the Olympics. And, um, I think that was a big motivator of just seeing other athletes. I knew even in other sports, um, being able to realize their dream and follow that. And, um, I had so many people support me along the way. Um, so just knowing that, um, I could live up to that dream. And, uh, like, I think some, some, every Olympic athlete's journey is different. Um, and, um, some people like a Penny Lysiak, they're just gifted. I mean, she's, she obviously worked very hard to who she is, but, um, she's also very gifted and she's, um, has the body type to do what she does. And, um, I would say that my, my, my path to where I've gotten has been characterized by like resilient grit, like just like putting my head down and like, not listening to the noise around me and like really being true to who I am and just working my butt off. <laughs> yeah. I feel that's something that you just need to have deep inside you. And I guess, do, do you think that's trainable? Like, was there anything that you did throughout your training that kind of increased your mental like resilience and grit, I guess? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, um, I look at my performance and I mean, like obviously physical training is important, but like the mental aspect comes in so much. Like I would say it's 80% of my training and that mental aspect is it comes in, in your physical training. So it, it allows you to, if you have enough mental capacity, it allows you to like create space to push farther. Even in like when you're, when you feel like you're fatiguing, like you can dig deeper and like continue to make that a normal thing. Um, and not giving up and, um, just training your body to, to believe in itself and transition into flow state. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I'll, I'll, um, have with me for the rest of my life from being an athlete. And, um, I'm just at the pinnacle now. I feel like I've just grasped, um, how to, how to race properly. So, um, there's so much more to be had. Uh, but yeah, I think that, um, it is trainable, but 
um, the biggest thing is you have to want to do it. Like if you, if you struggle to, to show up to training or you struggle to, to push yourself, like, then why are you doing it? Like you have to love what you do, um, to really like find those reservoirs of, of motivation. Yeah. You need to have a purpose. that's a little bit beyond yourself. And I guess in your case, it was like paving this pathway for all the athletes to follow you. I'm kind of trying to ask it like more of the mental side of the training. So was you mentioned visualization already, but um, was there anything else like whether it's like self-talk or, or journaling? I know a lot of athletes have some different techniques, but what was probably the biggest part for you that you used? All of the above. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and it's, again, it's different for every athlete, mm-hmm. but um, I needed all of those techniques. So um, I practice mindfulness every day. Um, and I, I really try to do it in the morning. Um, I wake up and I meditate with a guided meditation, but it doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes I'm tired, but I will find a a point in the day or a moment in the day where I'm mindful of my surroundings. And I, um, tag that on with breathing. So just intentional breaths where you're inhaling for four seconds, pausing for four seconds, exhaling for four seconds, and just feeling how breath changes your body um, is a big part of it. And then the visualization, I mean, there's there's so many aspects to visualization as well. Um, there's visualizing through as if you're looking at something, there's visualizing as if you're from a helicopter, um, there's visualizing um, by actually physically doing the movements with your hands and your paddle and, um, and all of those things play into it. Um, and then journaling, um, I, I journal a vast amount and different things. Um, but I think just storing some of my worry on paper, um, helps me to work it out. And, um, but I, I really like, I, I, I make sure that journaling isn't a chore for me because um, once things that help me get become grounded become a chore, I don't think they're serving me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, if I have to journal and I have to build it in, then I need to reassess where I'm at because I, I want to have a day where or days where I feel like mindfulness and journaling um, are just a part of my daily routine. Would you mind sharing what guided meditation or what app you use? Uh, yeah, so I've, I've um, used a lot of different apps. Um, I've been practicing mindfulness for about five years now. Um, so I first started with Budify. Mm, I started with that one too, actually. Yeah, so it's like $7 and it's like um, no membership fee and it's got some really good meditations and they're, they're nice and short. Um, and then um, I currently use uh, Waking Up with Sam Harris um, and it's um, a different meditation every day and he kind of curates it for it and chooses it for you. And I like that because I can just show up and I just need to become suddenly in that moment. Um, and then there's also, there's, um, I mean, the big, the big ones are Headspace and, um, Calm, I think is one. Calm is the other one. Yep. And those are subscription fees. Um, and then I also just try and do it on my own. Sometimes I, um, I'll do like, um, a relaxation where I'll, I'll set a timer, um, but I'll squeeze my toes and then relax them. And, and then I'll think about bringing oxygen to every part of my body intentionally, um, and I often will do that exact, um, meditation before a race just to, um, really feel my body and let, let all of the tension go. Yeah. There's, it just amazes me how much there is like mental work you have to put in. And I think, well, this is 
a lot of you hear it, but it's like, um, that's what separates like the best athletes from all the, cause everyone's so close at the Olympics. And have you found this to be true? Like, do you think, um, you wouldn't be at where you were if you didn't put all this work into the, the mental side of your training? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think as humans, like in a day, um, 20% of our exhaustion is from our brain work. And, and, um, like if you have a really mentally tolling day, you actually need to be eating just as much as like a physically tolling day because your brain takes up a lot of energy. Um, and managing our thoughts and our expectations and then, um, correlating those together. Like we need it, like we wear our emotions in our bodies. So we need to manage the emotion that comes in so that our body feels rested and ready for what it needs to take on. Um, so, um, yeah, the mental aspect is, is huge. Um, and I think like not just the preparation before a race, but also the management of what is after a race, like how you're going to feel after a race and like how you want to learn from what happened, um, either positive or negative, you still need to learn from it. And I think like that growth aspect is such a big part of, um, performance as well. Mm -hmm. I think this would be kind of a perfect transition into talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's, it's huge that the um, Olympics were delayed for a year. And I'm wondering, this must've just devastated some athletes and it really like uprooted training and just like planning. And I'm wondering how it affected you in your training. Yeah, I think it's, it's been hard for all of us in a unique way. Uh, there were so many things that happened. So when the pandemic first happened, um, I had just gotten back from Olympic qualifiers in Australia and I was to be home for two weeks and then head to our final Olympic qualifier in Rio de Janeiro. Um, and then, um, everything kind of went, we were grounded and then the Olympics were, um, canceled for a moment and we weren't sure what was going to happen there. And then there was the announcement of delayed, um, so I think the, the first thing that I did freak out a little bit, for sure, I panic bought and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And um, I wasn't financially prepared for another year. So there was a lot of freak out moments there. But um, the first thing I did is I sat down with my coach and I wrote out a plan, a rough plan of what we could do. And I was like, plan A, plan B, plan C. So plan A, if we can travel, this is where we go. Plan B, if we can't travel there, we go here. And then plan C and um, we never thought that it would be, that would be training in Canada for a year, but, um, it did work out in my favor. Um, I think at the, at the point that the pandemic happened, I was already traveling for nine months of the year on and off for years and years had, heading to that point. So it allowed me to be home for a summer, um, and actually like enjoy summer, but train at the same time and build a community a little bit. Um, and that was so important to me. Um, so and then um, fast forward, um, we go to the fall and we were trying to figure out our Olympic qualifications and they kept on getting delayed and the locations of in the world of where they were kept on changing. So um, we were supposed to go to Europe in the fall and then um, there was two high of cases there. So we actually stayed in Canada and went to Chilliwack and it was um, some of the coldest training I've ever done. It was very gritty training. I couldn't feel my fingers or toes for a lot of it. And, um, 
uh, talk about um, mentally draining, tra- training in really cold weather and having to muster the courage to go and put on wet gear um, when it's like two degrees out and go paddle in white water when it's snowing. Um, yeah. <laughs> Not something I'd like to do. <laughs> it was definitely, um, um, I look back on it and I'm like, oh, I'm so happy I got through those moments, but it was, it was really hard being in it. Um, and then uh, we got home from that and um, we kind of decided as a team and found out that we need to, if we want to be um, we knew we were going to go to Europe in, in January, but we weren't, we thought it was going to be for a short camp, but we soon found out with quarantines and the risk of getting sick with traveling that we actually decided as a team that we were going to stay away for the entire, um, the entirety until Olympic selections and the Olympics. So, um, at this point, our team, there was four, there's, there's four spots to be qualified and three of my teammates, the men's kayak, the women's kayak, and the men's canoe were already qualified for the Olympics. And we knew who we were going for Canada. Um, but my category, um, and Lois and I, we hadn't qualified cause we had missed our, um, final Olympic qualifier, um, because of the pandemic. So we, all went together and we traveled together and we were uncertain of what was going on together, but it's, it's hard because, um, when we were away, we had to be in a bubble together. So we couldn't really go anywhere, go do anything. And then the only people we could really social with socialize with were each other. Um, but we're also competing for an Olympic spot together. And, um, whether you like it or not, you're competitive and you're, you're obviously trying to support each other and have humility, but it's still, um, extremely difficult. Um, and I mean, if I look back there's, there's so many other things that, um, were setbacks with the Olympic or sorry, with the pandemic, um, like we couldn't go to the gym, but, um, or train as a team, but we were able to train as small groups and our, our sport, you can socially distant, um, because it is outside, um, in the summer <laughs> for the most part. So, um, yeah, I think that, um, what I really focused on is looking at my weaknesses and how I could, um, improve those weaknesses without, um, being in a boat and just trying to, to do that at home. Yeah. I think I actually came across a picture of you training in your garage in Calgary on like a row machine. Um, and I think that's something people don't really think about. It's like, okay, normally you're kind of chasing summer all across the globe. Um, and you're training outside most of the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then to just like have to spend a winter in Canada and like, it wasn't the nicest winter. Um, so I can just so much adversity that you had to get through and it'd be hard not to compare yourself to like some of the other athletes that maybe had summer year round or had access to training. And I can imagine that would have been very hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. I think, um, you just, you had, when, when it initially happened, there's a lot of anxiety and, and, um, moments of freaking out. But I think like what kept me grounded and what really like helped me to, to stay motivated was just understanding like our get to moments. So, um, my sports psych always talks about this and our our team has kind of taken on this motto, but, um, we still get to train. We still get to try to qualify. We still get to go. And I think, um, we just had to adapt and, um, look at, what, what do we have in our circumstances and, and try and own that as much as possible? Because yes, like some other countries were able to train on a river throughout the whole pandemic and were considered an essential service and things like that. And unfortunately in Canada, we didn't have that same opportunity, but again, we still 
get to figure out an opportunity. And I think that we just, we, as, um, as a small team here in Alberta, um, we adapted and we, um, we figured out a way to thrive. I love that. I, you get to, and it's a, it's a way to reframe everything and make it a positive experience. That's super powerful. Um, so I guess like, I just want to hear a little bit more about your training. So what normally, I guess, what's the ratio of wilderness rivers to, do you ever have access to actual courses that you can practice on and, or are you mostly outside on rivers in the wilderness until you're actually competing somewhere? Uh, so we, in Canada, we don't have any artificial courses. We have one that's, um, a little artificial, but it's not really on, it's in Whistler between Whistler and Pemberton on, um, um, interjects, uh, on Rutherford Creek. And, um, but for the most part, um, our training is on artificial courses abroad. Uh, so when I'm here in Canada, specifically here in Calgary, um, I train on Harvey Passage, um, which is in downtown Calgary and then the Kananaskis river. And, uh, I mean, there's so much that you can be learned there, but there's, um, artificial courses are so consistent and so different that, um, I do need to spend that time on those, those courses. So, um, that's why we're away most of the year. Um, and I hope that at some point there'll be a course built here in Canada, but for now, um, yeah, we just have to spend that time away and, um, it's, uh, it's, it's hard being away all the time, but you, you find a community on the road. So that's, what's important. I don't think I ever, I didn't think I asked you this at the start, but what is your favorite part of the sport? Like, what do you, why are you so drawn to it? Um, I think that I, I really love paddling because it takes me outside. I love being in the outdoors and, um, we get to see some of the coolest places in the world. Um, I love it's it's like dancing on the water and I I'm not a great dancer. I'm actually terrible at dancing and I don't have rhythm but um I just find that I'm so connected and so um there's so much going on but at the same time time slows down and you just you you get to be one with the elements and um I love I love slalom but my my favorite part of paddling is getting out on natural rivers in Canada or or other places and and um you get to go to these places where there's, um, that people, some people have never gone before. Um, and you can only get there by paddling. And, um, I think, uh, my, my friend said this to me once and I, I just, it's always stuck with me, but, um, paddling, you don't leave footprints. So, um, you go to these places and you get to leave impressions in your mind, but you don't leave footprints behind. So, um, it's this low impact, amazing thing of, of, uh, discovering beautiful places amazing sport that you just get to be immersed in nature and I think there's not a lot of sports like that actually Um, I'm wondering so I asked you what you love most about it is there anything that you hate about the training but you make yourself do anyways because obviously you need to uh I really love training um honestly like that's like my favorite part of being an athlete is training um even when it's cold out, <laughs> um, I, I think I, I really, I struggle with racing. Um, I love, I mean, I love racing. I think it's cool to, to, um, be able to sh- put all of your work into an acclimation of something, but, um, the feeling of being nervous for a race is like, it's the worst feeling. <laughs> so managing that and figuring that out. Um, but I think, 
um, our sports. Uh, I'm actually, so as I said, I'm kneeling in my boat and I think, um, something that I just like is that my legs hurt so much if I sit for too long. So, um, and that our boats are really easily broken, um, because they're made out of carbon Kevlar. So, uh, whenever we break our boat, we have to fix it. And I, I'm really not good at that. So that's probably something I don't like is fixing boats. (laughs) No, that's fair. And I can, um, I'm not trying to relate to you on the same level, but um, even in my experience of uh, Muay Thai fighting, that was, I found for me, I love the training and that's what pushed me to compete, but it's like the actual competition. I, I actually hated it, but it's, it's having that goal and something to work towards. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit about what like a weekly schedule would be like for you? Like how often are you in the gym and I guess like cross training versus on the river versus, um, maybe like on an artificial rower? Um, so let's say it changes season to season. Cause if mm-hmm. I'm in Canada in winter, it's obviously going to be different if I'm in Canada in the summer. Um, but in Canada in the summer, um, a typical training schedule, I'm usually on the water, um, twice a day. Um, so morning and afternoon, um, or I'm on the water once a day and then I'm doing gym or, um, going for a bike ride to maintain my aerobic fitness. Um, so I build biking in as training, which I'm grateful for because I really love biking. It's just a nice way to, to get out and socialize, but still be fit. Um, and so when we're on the water, we do various sessions. Um, so we do flat water sessions, which we would do more, um, we call it max aerobic power. So we call it map. And, um, that's like interval training. So like 30 seconds on 30 seconds off, um, eight times four or something, or, um, a minute on a minute off or 10 seconds on 10 seconds off or five minutes on one minute off. And it, it changes throughout the season of how close you are to races, um, to, to build your, um, aerobic threshold in your body up a different way. Um, and then when we're on whitewater, um, we do things like we would do a race simulation. So we would have like a race. And as if it's a race, I would do visualization, be ready for two runs, walk the course, things like that. Or we would do short courses. So like break one course into fifths or one course into thirds or one course into fourth or quarters. Um, or just techniques. So you just focus on one section and you keep on repeating a section. So, um, it changes throughout the week. And again, it changes, um, when you get closer to a race, like closer to a race, we're doing like oodles of race simulations, like race simulation after race simulation, but farther out from race, we're doing more technique and, um, focusing on hard moves because, um, they're hard to wrap your brain around. So yeah, that's kind of what it looks like. And then in weights, we, we also change from, either lifting heavy to repetition to, um, lifting light, um, to feeling explosive. It all, it all depends on how close you are to a race. And then that's how you base it. Yeah. Super fascinating. Um, I, I didn't really think about how much technique there would be. I didn't realize it'd be so easy to tip your boat, especially if you're kneeling. And I can only imagine how hard that would be. I'm just like picturing it. I can imagine it takes a lot of core strength. And I'm wondering, like, do you have a favorite core exercise that you'd be able to share with everyone? Yeah. Go give a try. (laughs) Our sport is like, I would say like the most important aspect is core, um, because that connects your shoulders, um, and your lower body. Um, so my favorite core exercise, I love plank. Um, I try and actually plank every day for at least one to five minutes. Um, because I, it's really strengthens your lower back. Um, 
And my favorite quote, okay, so I really love, they're really hard, but I really love them. Um, so you hang off a pull-up bar and they're called windshield wipers. Mm. So imagine a windshield, but that's your legs and you windshield them back and forth as you're hanging. And I, they're, they always kill my core, but they're one of my favorite exercises. Awesome. Everyone listening, go try windshield wipers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I guess like leading up to the Olympics, how did you visualize it and read like how not visualize, but how did you frame it in your mind? Were you trying to treat it like to almost downplay it and treat it like a world championships or were you like being like, this is special. This is the Olympics. I guess like, just like thoughts leading up to the race. Um, I think any race, no matter what it is, it's always, it's always a big deal, but um, yeah, I did a lot of, I did a lot of work with my sports psych talking this through because it was my first Olympics and it was my first opportunity to Mm -hmm. kind of um, come up with this, this strategy. And so um, I, 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 I've always lived this way where I think it's important to, um, be authentic to where you're at and being present. And so for me, it didn't make sense to think, to, to be like, okay, this is just another full session, or this is just another, this, because it was almost like lying to myself mm-hmm. because it is, it's the Olympics. It's, it's like this, it's this whole other can of worms. Right. So, um, my, my mindset going in was, um, thinking about, thinking about the journey and thinking about the, the, my favorite parts of it and everything I've done to get there. So, um, something I do before a race, and this is what I've done with my sports psych is there's two separate things I always do before a race. And it's, it's a journal, um, journaling type thing. But the first thing is, um, an evidence list. Um, so I literally just write down as much evidence as I can of, um, why I should be successful. So like, um, okay, I've, I, for example, in Tokyo, I wrote things like, um, I, I was 10th in the Tokyo test event and that's, um, that means I made the final. So I made the final here. So, um, I really like Tokyo. Um, I paddle well here. Um, I've worked 12 years to get here. I, I deserve to be here. Like someone said, I looked good on the water the other day. Like, it's just like little things like that. Um, and then the worry list, um, you write down all of the worries that you have, um, and then you write down solutions to that worry. So like, what if I forget my bib that day? Oh, well, you just make sure you put it in the, your bag the night before. Or um, what if I'm really tired and I don't sleep the night before? Well, just know that you can race even being tired and just like things like that. And so um, when you, you do get to the star line and you are, and I was there um, and um, I think for me, it was like, I do a lot of breathing and a lot of like calming exercises and thinking about my get to, like, I was like, I get to be at the Olympics. I don't have to be here. Um, that, that was a big thing. Um, and when I got to the start line, I, I always thought my heart would be jumping out of my chest and I would be so nervous and there'd be so much going on. And, um, I, I mean, I'm grateful there honestly wasn't fans there because I think it would have totally distracted me, but, um, yeah, I just kind of, I just kind of like smiled and was like, okay, I'm free. And I, um, you know, I get to go put my training to, to work and I'm really excited to do that. And, um, I have this amazing tribe of people behind me and, um, let's, let's go paddle and fight for them as much for me. And, and that didn't put pressure, put it like gave me motivation and excitement. And, um, 
that's why, that's why for me, it was like, it's not another full session. Like this is, this is an opportunity that I want to seize and I want to fight for. And so that's what I brought into my racing. It's amazing. It kind of gives me goosebumps hearing about it. Like I'm just imagining, like I always, you see the athletes at the start gate and you're just wondering like what is going through their mind or is their mind empty? Is it blank? Is it, are they as nervous? Like none of them look nervous. No one looks nervous. Everyone looks so prepared, but it's, it's very kind of refreshing preparation yeah. <laughs> that, right so yeah no you sh- and you shared some really great strategies that I think people regardless of whether you're training for the Olympics or not that you can use in any high stakes situation um I'm wondering just like coming out of this what has been one of the biggest lessons you've learned or one of your biggest takeaways um it's very specific actually um well there's a couple things but um being rested for a big race is more important than training more. Um, and I wish I had taken a bigger break a little bit before we went to Tokyo and like a really big break, like actually chilling out, like, but it's hard because I couldn't really chill being away. Um, I wish I had come home in between. Um, but, um, very specifically, and this is a mental thing. Um, on the race course, the place that I made my mistake in my second run, um, which was like this one mistake that kept me out of the semifinal, um, I was worried about that move and thought I could, there's a couple of options that I could have done there. I could have gone and just gone through the gates. It was gate 12, 13, and I could have just gone through the gate and spun really quickly and then done another spin. And like, it would have been an extra second to spin or extra, maybe two seconds to spin, but at least I would have cleared the gate and gone through the rest of the course. Um, but my race plan, I decided to go direct. Um, and I had watched some athletes, um, flip over or had done too much edge there and it was, and then things didn't go well. So I, I was like, okay, just stick to my race plan. My race plan is to go direct, um, and stay on my left side. And, um, I thought about that exact move, um, because I had, um, the men's ki- or sorry, the women's kayak and the men's canoe were two events before. So I actually wasn't on the water for six days before on the whitewater, um, my race. And so I got to watch them do the race runs and see how they, their boats reacted there. Um, and then I could make some decisions on how I was going to race. And yeah, I just, I, I was worried about it. And I, um, my gut told me spin, but my coach told me go direct and stay lefty. And, um, I think what I've learned and I really want to own that is when you're, when you have a gut feeling like, um, you really got to own how you feel and not do it for other people, especially when you have high pressure or something like the Olympics, like, um, what your gut is telling you is, is, um, how you're going to be the most successful. So, um, for me, that's really what I want to carry into this next stage here. Thank you for sharing that actually. Um, I'm glad you're able to talk about it a bit because I'm sure it still stings. And, um, (laughs) yeah, I'm just wondering, I guess, like, because you're just probably replaying the race quite a lot in your head. And, um, that's a common thing where people just like replay things. And I'm sure like many people listening have had similar experiences. Do you have any strategies for how you're dealing with that going forward? Like how you're, I guess, reframing thoughts or getting yourself out of that, like downward spiral. Um, yeah, I think just coming back to, um, moments of, of gratefulness, um, like, kind of just, um, 
we're looking, looking at the, I, I hate the word journey because I've used it so many times, but really looking at the journey, like it's, yeah, I mean, you train this 12 years for like 120 seconds, but <laughs> um, I think that I really, um, when I am in the moments where I'm negative in my head, um, not just pushing them away, um, like acknowledging and understanding why they're there, um, writing them down. So they're not constantly coming up and talking to someone about them, like a friend or a family member or a coach. And, um, like if it persists to be there after you do the things that make you happy, then reassess and, um, decide. And, um, yeah, I I saw this thing actually the other day, my friend sent me a video of, um, Oh, I can't remember who it was. Uh, he's a famous actor and he did the pet detective. Um, Sorry, yeah, I can't help you. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. He's, he, if I said his name, you'd know who I'm talking about. Um, and he talked about depression and he talked about how like being in a depressive state is really important because um, you have to crawl out of that and you have to understand that that's the person you don't want to be. You want to be someone else. And so when you look back, you can understand that. And I think that's, that's important, um, to be in the moment and acknowledge how you're feeling, but also reflect back and, and debrief how that affected you. Yeah, no, that's super important. Um, one of the themes that kind of emerged from the Olympics this year was the topic of mental health. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share on that topic. Um, anything that maybe you wish people understood a little bit better about the athletes and what you guys go through to get to where you are? I think, um, the, the strongest feeling that comes through from me is, um, we, as, as high performance athletes for team Canada, um, we are asked to do the same thing as professional athletes, but we do not get paid as much as professional athletes or or have the same amount of support. Um, and we wear team Canada and we literally wear Canada on our back, not just physically, like physically, yes, there's a team Canada logo, but we wear Canada on our back and Canada gets to, um, live through our experience and live through our, our highs and lows. But, um, and they, and we as athletes get put on this pedestal and we, we are, we're glorified and we're made, um, into these, um, robotic heroes, but we're, we're human. Um, like we all have families, we all have relationships, we have feelings. Um, we have aspirations in sport and outside of sport. Um, and I think that it's important that we acknowledge that, um, we are also human. (laughs) Um, and that we can't like, we can't always be on and we can't always like give this perfect answer or have no emotion or, um, like always be, we, we don't always love our sport. Like no matter who you are, um, or what you do, you don't always love what you do. And, um, I think people think that we're always on and that we're always doing things and that we're not, we don't have breaks. And, um, that's, that's something that I I really hope that that comes forward, that, um, we need to be supported, um, all the way throughout the Olympics and not just at the Olympics, because like the three weeks after the Olympics are some of the hardest times for Olympic athletes, because you're so celebrated. And so, so many people want a piece of you. And then all of a sudden no one wants a piece of you. And, And yeah, it's this, it's this weird transition. So, um, I think, I mean, there's so many aspects to mental health, but that's one of them just 
understanding that like performing under pressure is the hardest thing ever. Um, and, um, we have so many expectations put on us. Um, and obviously it's our dream and it's our goal, but, um, it's also, uh, it's also, uh, that we're human. I think what you said there's, we really do live through Olympic athletes when you guys are competing and everyone for like the time the Olympics are on, everyone's watching these sports that they really didn't even know existed until otherwise. And I think it's some very important points you brought up. And is there anything that I guess someone listening can do to support Olympic athletes more, whether I guess like, cause options to donate financially if they're able to, or is it more just being aware and trying to show support more than every four years. (laughs) I think it's just practice empathy. Like if you've ever been injured or if you've ever gone through a breakup or you've ever had lost someone in your life, like, how did you feel? Like it was really hard. Um, so imagine going through that, but having an entire nation or world watching you and you need to perform and also go through those moments. Um, and so I think that um, that's, that's the biggest message I would say is like, remember, like, if we don't get those results that we were poised to get or, or expected to get, um, don't be disappointed or, or be, dis- or also like, if people get to those results, like celebrate them, celebrate the crap out of them because like, um, there's just so much that goes on behind the scenes that, um, I think now with social media, you can share a lot more of it, but it's also like when we are sharing on social media or when when we share what's going on behind the scenes of our sport, like people have to remember like those behind the scenes and the sharing, like that's our daily life. Like that's me, Haley Daniels. That's my life. Um, so, um, when something doesn't go wrong, like we're directly tied to it. Like I can't just like go to work. And then when I go home, like I'm not at work anymore. I'm a different person. Like there's a, there's no detachment from when you're an athlete. So, um, I think that's, I think that's how I feel about it. Yeah. No, thank you. That's, that's huge. Um, Okay. So as, as we're like, we've been talking for about an hour now and I haven't asked you about plant-based diets yet. Um, because <laughs> that's, that is one of the reasons you came across my radar in the first place. I saw an article about you, um, and it wasn't directly a plant-based article, but it did mention you had a plant-based cookbook out there. And I was like, Oh, that's so cool. And then I've been following you on Instagram ever since. And, um, I would love to just know a little bit more about that. And, um, so when did you adopt a plant-based diet and what were your reasons for doing so? Uh, so yeah, so I've been a plant-based athlete since 2012. Um, I've been on and off, like I've dabbled with eating fish again or eating eggs again. Um, but I'm lactose intolerant. So, um, I decided to stop eating milk because I, I I would just continue to eat it and know I would get sick after. Um, and I just couldn't do that anymore. And I actually, um, I read a book at one point, I can't remember the book, but it was talking about allergies and specifically lactose intolerance and, um, being lactose intolerant, like when you eat milk, your intestines actually swell. Like it's your intestines swelling and that's why your body's hurting. And that just like direct, I was like, so every time I do this, I'm (laughs) making my body like swell up. Like that's so wrong. So especially um, as an athlete and being all about recovery and everything, inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. Like inflammation in the body. So like, if I think about like, if I hurt my knee or something, my knee gets inflamed, I rest it. So, um, if, 
my intestines are getting inflamed. I, why am I continuing to do that? Right. So, mm-hmm. um, that's why, uh, so I decided to be plant-based, um, after reading the book, um, specifically all plant-based, um, after reading the thrive diet by Brendan Brazier. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to try it because he said that he had his best results of being a, a vegan athlete, um, in Ironman. So I was like, okay, I'll try it. And I felt awesome. Um, and it's definitely been challenging. Like when we're traveling, like, um, even in Japan, like they don't, um, even though tofu is a big part of their diet, they have become very Westernized in what they eat. So, um, there's a lot of like a lot less vegetables, so much focus on meat and deep fried things, um, and a lot of milk and things. So, um, yeah, I think it's just like, building that in. And, but I, I think from being plant-based, I've been so resourceful. Like every time I go to a dinner party or anywhere, I always have like a bar or I'll eat before or have a plan to eat after just because I know that, um, there's often not as many opportunities for me and, um, a hangry Haley is never a good Haley. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was curious about that. What the um, food situation would be like in Tokyo and what it was like, because you were on the road for since January before the Olympics. Like that's insane. I know I get stressed out when I go on like a road trip somewhere and I can't imagine being out for like seven months. So what were like, did you just pack a lot of food or load up on things when you knew you could, or like how controlled were you about your diet and how did you get around some of those difficult situations? Yeah, I had to let go of a lot of things. Um, so when we, for the majority of the time that we were in Europe, um, we were actually staying in places that were like, um, there was a chef cooking for us. So like not specifically for our team, but we were staying like in Paris, we were staying at the Olympic training center. So, um, where all the rowers were staying and the sprint athletes. And so like, um, and then we were staying physically there with no kitchens. So we would show up and there'd be food. Um, and there'd always be like a salad bar, but, um, like, a meat alternative in France, they didn't understand that. They were like, sorry, you don't eat meat. You don't eat cream. So it would be like pasta with like tomato sauce on it. So I, I would always go to the grocery store and, um, have alternative proteins for myself and alternative. I would have some vegetables. Like I always have carrots with me because, um, there's such a simple snack, carrots and hummus, um, and gives me some, some good energy from that. But, um, yeah, I think it's just about being prepared and understanding that, um, you need to kind of be on it on your own and, um, also not getting angry if someone doesn't bend over backwards for you, because it's a choice to be plant-based and it's also a choice for people to eat meat. And so I think you just, you need to stand up for yourself and not expect other people to do it for you. Good advice, actually. Um, so how did your teammates feel about you? Um, being plant-based was everyone pretty okay about it or were they curious or does everyone just kind of let you do your thing um I mean some of my teammates they like initially they made fun of me a lot actually they're like oh this veg over here like and and I was like whatever I feel great um and now it's like trending right like when I first started at like plant-based diets and being vegan was like just kind of coming into it um it but I'm my dad always joked he's like when you're done being vegan come and meet with me and stuff like that but um now like um they always just kind of like helped me out and they were like, Oh, like we have to figure out this for Haley. And I think sometimes it's hard because like, there's, we have to figure out a happy medium for all of us. Cause they would kind of just eat whatever. And then it's like, Oh, but Haley has this diet. So we have to go somewhere here. But, um, they also know like part of it's an allergy for me. And, um, when I eat meat, like I don't feel great either. Um, and now I just even can't get my head around like eating 
like it's not even the animal part. It's like the blood and the, oh, there's just so much. And then the environmental impact and there's so many things with it. So um, yeah, I, I think that they're pretty, they're pretty supportive, but um, it's, it's just logistically sometimes hard. Yeah, it, it's been exciting to see actually the vegan movement or a plant-based movement through athletes over the last few years, actually. It's opened up a lot of doors and makes things a little bit easier than it was before, for sure. A lot of yeah. people I would never suspect and a lot of athletes that I know that are like not eating meat is, is pretty insane. That's cool. Um, what was the food actually like in the Olympic Village? Like I'd imagine there, there was quite a few different options, right? Yeah. The Olympic village is definitely like, it's a massive food court of food from the world. So, um, you have absolutely everything. There's halal, there's pizza, there's pasta. Um, usually whatever host country you're in, there's a strong contingency of that type of food. So there was like every type of Japanese food you can think of. So from dim sum to sushi to, um, like steamed buns and like all those type of things. Um, but it was cool because the sushi, um, there was actually more vegan options for sushi than there was, um, meat options because sushi is really expensive because of the fish. Uh, so I always was, I had sushi like every day. <laughs> um, and then, um, there was, um, uh, like a salad bar and you could eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner at any time of the day. Um, so if you're hungry in the middle of the night, you'd walk over to the food court and get it. But, um, yeah, I think like I, I was quite happy there. Um, and even the pre-games training camp, um, was also good when we were in the hotel. Uh, yeah, it was just hard when we were in France and Poland where actually our Olympic selections were, I was eating a lot of potatoes because in Poland, they didn't really understand. <laughs> my oh, potatoes are good. Potatoes are underrated. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. Yeah. Um, do you have a go-to like, I guess, pre-race meal or what did you eat like the day before or the night before your Olympic race? Yeah. You know, um, I used to obsess over this, um, because I was like, I have to have this perfect meal before. And I'd always heard like these athletes, it's like, you want this, this, and this, but like our sport is so technical. Um, the the only thing that I really like try and do is I try and eat like a, a large amount of carbs before and make sure that I have protein. Um, because you're so exhausted, like there's so much that goes into the days before race preparation. So I don't limit how much I eat before. Um, but really there's no ideal, (laughs) there's no ideal one because you don't, you really like, um, when I'm at a big competition, I'm never home. It's always abroad and you almost never have that much control over your food. Um, so you kind of have to let go of those attachments and, um, just build in whatever it is you have access to. Yeah, that's, I can imagine that being easier said than done, but I guess practice, you get practice. better at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I don't know if you, if it's still available, but, um, so you do have a cookbook out. I think it was like Canoeist Kitchen. Um, mm. I was wondering, is that still available if people, because that's a fundraiser, like all the proceeds from that would go to support you. Is that right? Yeah. It's, I don't actually have any left. Um, no. <laughs> They were, they were small cookbook. Um, but yeah, I, I took, I taught vegan cooking classes and, um, had a vegan cookbook that we came out with. Um, and I did that for fundraising for a few years and it was super fun. And I, I, um, I was so grateful for everyone to support it, but, um, yeah, if anyone wants any more, I can send them a digital version, but <laughs> yeah. Is that available on your website or it is? Like, yeah. They'd have to, okay. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure I link to that. So, um, yeah, this has been amazing. I'm just, um, as we kind of wrap up here, so you mentioned you're not quite sure what's next, um, the goals or if Paris 2024 is in the future or not, but I guess just like looking at the next month, like, do you have any fun, like 
goal activities planned? Like any like getaways that you're looking forward to? Um, I mean, I, I haven't seen my brother. Um, he's my, my brother's my best friend. Um, we hang out a lot and I haven't seen him since I left in January. He's actually a wildland firefighter. So he's fighting all the fire happening in Canada right now. So I get to see him on Tuesday and, uh, we're going to go to our cabin in Invermere. Um, and just, uh, I, I love mountain biking. So we're going to go mountain biking and, um, I'm going to go to Revelstoke after that and do some creaking. So that's where bigger, bigger water, scarier waters, like waterfalls and stuff like that. But I, I just, um, yeah, I'm kind of just, uh, hoping that I can spend the next month in the mountains. Well, you definitely deserve it. And um, please thank your brother for fighting the wildfires for me because um, for anyone that's not in Canada, it's a big issue right now. But um, I guess just as we close out here, um, what is one thing that you'd like people listening to take away from this conversation? It can be anything. Um, I think it's, it's cheesy, but um, don't let barriers hold you back. Like, make your dreams happen. (laughs) Um, it's pretty, it's, it's the most amazing feeling achieving something you've worked so hard for. So don't be discouraged by hard work. Don't be discouraged by something that you know is going to be hard because by actually applying yourself and doing it, that's actually so much more fun and rewarding than, um, being afraid of it. Thank you so much. Um, so I guess if anyone's listening, if they want to connect with you, follow along your journey, where would you like to direct them to? Um, I'm most active on Instagram. So, uh, Haley Dansky, um, is my Instagram handle. Um, I haven't entered the TikTok world yet, but maybe I will, who knows? <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah. Or my website, HaleyDaniels.ca. Amazing. Well, again, thank you so much. It's been a true honor to share an hour with an Olympian. So I hope everyone listening got as much out of this as I did. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.